Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be here this morning with you. It's, uh, this topic, the servant of God, is special to me. And um, I trust that I'm able to communicate this in a way that's, that's honoring to God. Thanks, Steve, for the opening and for those selection of hymns. Thank you, Vicky, for playing. Um, it brings me back to a time that I was reflecting we were saved in, when we were going to church, actually in New Leicester, and then we moved to Kirkland Lake, and we spent 12 years there in just a small little church, very humble. And um, for music, we had a piano most of the time. And uh, there, there was many, many times that we opened a, a service, and the song leader didn't have an instrument. And so it was up to the song leader to open the, the song. And sometimes I was a song leader. And my voice is terrible, absolutely terrible. And um, I used to say, oh, great, we've got a piano. You know, it's so good. So just the simplicity of opening with a piano and just being able to sing, it's, it just brings me back to just how good it is just to focus on the words and what God's saying through these hymns. So just thank you for that. Let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for for just the the words of praise and worship that we can lift unto you. We, we thank you for, for the word that helps us to understand and draw us closer to you, Jesus. And so we praise you for that. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Looking at Isaiah this morning, uh, the topic before us is the servant of God, Isaiah. And we'll go through that, that theme for some time. Um, just in way of introduction, I'll just add to what Jim um, spoke on last week in way of introduction to the book. Uh, the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. The first 39 chapters are occurred during his ministry, and they were probably written around 700 B.C. And from 40 to 66, they are written near the end of his life, probably around about 680 B.C. The first half of the book uh, was Isaiah, the first 39 chapters or so, contains scathing uh, denunciation, pronouncements against Judah, against Israel and surrounding nations, um, and really a call to them to repent of their sins. However, the last 26 chapters of the book are filled with consolation. They're filled with hope. They're filled with um, Isaiah unfolding God's blessings and a future that would include the coming of the Messiah. Section 40 to 66 is called Words of Comfort. And the section we're looking at is in section 42 of, of the book of Isaiah, which includes those words of comfort. Isaiah 40, verse 1, starts out by saying, Comfort, comfort my people, says the God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received the Lord's hand and double for all of her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for God. John the Baptist picks up on this theme and he used these words as he challenged the people to prepare for the imminent coming of the Messiah. And he also echoed Isaiah's words when he used the theme, 
Repent of your sins. Isaiah speaks more about the Messiah as both the suffering servant and also the sovereign Lord. The fact that the Messiah was to be a suffering servant and the sovereign Lord could not really be clearly understood and seen until the New Testament. Yet even then, without struggle, to understand how one would come as a servant and also as sovereign Lord at the same time. The previous chapter in Isaiah 41 that we'll look at today contains an argument against false gods. God says in verse 21 to 29, Look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. They're sham gods, he says. They're no gods. They're fool-making gods and poor imitations, speaking of the idols that existed at that time. He pictures Israel as God's servant, whom God is encouraging and telling them to have faith. If Israel could have erected a banner at that time, it might have used this phrase, Pursue the promise. Israel, pursue the promise that God has made to you. Israel will emerge, and God is with them, and will provide the help that they need. He'll turn desperate and despairing situations into hope and prosperity for Israel. God is with them. Isaiah is reminding them this message is from God who keeps his promise because he's trustworthy and because he's reliable. Servant Israel, have hope in me and have hope in none other. Our text this morning is from Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. This is sometimes called the servant song, that little section. So let's read through it. I have my big, thick Bible here today. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Here is my servant, whom I uphold. My chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his laws the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out. He who spread out the earth and all that comes of it. Who gives breath to the people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you And I will make you a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. 
to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. This is my name. I will not give my glory to another or praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them unto you. Isaiah 42 opens by God saying, Take a good look at my servant. Prophetically, Isaiah was speaking of Jesus. He said he's the real one. He's genuine. Compared with the fakes and the imitations that I spoke about in the previous chapter. And if you and if the future readers of your book pay close attention, what I'm also saying is this. That through Jesus, you'll understand that He's the model for servanthood. He's the model for what you should emulate in your life. The things that He says and the things that He does requires us to pay close attention because He is the model for which for us to follow. Therefore, people of Isaiah's day learn from the character I'm describing, and perhaps more of our day, follow the example that he's already set for us. The servant behavior was groundbreaking. It was novel. It was different from all the surrounding nations. You, Israel, Judah, can model my future servant, Jesus and show the surrounding pagan nations who God is and what He's like. This opportunity is before you. He's the reason that I chose Israel that you should model Jesus, God, for the other nations to see. The open question before them was, Will you take this opportunity and show these pagan nations who God is? Isaiah encouraged him. He says, say yes. Please say yes. Show them God's way is very different from the self-destructing, sinful pathways the other nations are set out on. The message is universal throughout the ages, though. God is teaching the same lesson to us that we should be the model for other people to look to, to see what God is like. Yet we have this amazing, huge advantage. Having a retrospective view of Jesus, we can model Him closer because we've been given this deep insight of who He is and we could know Him better. Isaiah 42 verse 1a says, Here's my servant, these verses are quoted in Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 to 22, speaking with reference to Christ. In Matthew, he quoted Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4, that exact passage. And he's saying, 
Look at Jesus. He's actually fulfilling all the things that Isaiah spoke of centuries before. He is the one. Examine him. Isaiah says, here is my servant. Examine him closely. Take a long, hard, good look at Jesus. And he can stand the test of your scrutiny. Speaking prophetically, Isaiah says, test him. Please try to spot any imperfections within him. Measure him closely to what I've said. Test the prophecy. And that is the call that God has placed on us. We can't just sit back and be casual and be passive about our examination of him. Isaiah wants us to be thorough in our study. He wants us to debate and he wants us to be intent on our reasoning of who Jesus is. That is the substance of genuine faith in a genuine God. It's the rigor of testing that results in the deepening of our faith. It's the rigor of us putting our life in the hands of Jesus and Him proving that He's reliable. Even in the small steps. And the small steps lead to bigger steps because He's proven Himself reliable to us. After all, in the Gospels, Jesus is asking us to put our complete faith and trust in Him. If someone met you on the street and said, here's what I want you to do. You have to put your faith, your trust, your life, your whole self in me. We'd say, well, stop, wait a minute. Who are you? Why should I trust you? Is this safe? Do I feel secure? Have you proven yourself reliable? Jesus is saying, I'm all of those things and more, and I want you to examine deeply that I am reliable and you can put your faith and trust in me. Verse 1b is an interesting choice of words. One translation says, I put my spirit on him. Another says, I've bathed him in my spirit. My life is in him. My love is in Jesus. He is immersed in God. We're given this very rare glimpse, the mystery of the Trinity, as God is revealing his intense pride for his son. It's like a father looking at his child and beaming with pride, with appreciation. Speaking more like parents, looking at a newborn child and considering the love that will be lavishly poured out upon this child, and being altogether pleased and marveling at the same time that you've been given this privilege and this responsibility of holding and having this child. Verse 1b goes on to say, He will bring justice to the nations. This is a reoccurring theme throughout this section. My servant bringing forth justice. It's mentioned again in verse 3. He says, In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. Justice will be modeled by Jesus as His example. By example, Jesus changes inequality to equality towards other people. He levels the playing field. We just have to look at His model, His example of life to see how He does that. 
He's left us these servant points that we can follow. In verse 2, He will not cry out or shout or raise His voice in the wilderness. He won't call attention to what He does. Like the model Jesus gives us for prayer and for fasting, do it in secret. Do it in solitude. Do it in your closet. Go in your closet and pray in solitude to Jesus so that you are praying and hearing the things that He's saying to you in the deepness of prayer. Whatever you do, do it in the same solitude and that you will receive from Jesus the things that He's rewarded for you for that, not from others. He won't establish any tears or any importance by setting Himself up as some superior sort of a servant. But in fact, in humility, in Philippians 2.5, He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, where He put others ahead of Himself. He said, treat others better than yourself. Your attitude should be the same as you, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation and took upon Himself the form of a servant. And so, that's the model He set for us. In verse 3, a bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not snuff out. He won't brush aside the bruised and the hurt in society. The downcast and those who tend to get ignored. Those people that society says are bruised, hurt, and downcast. And they get pushed aside for somebody that's considered to be more desirable, more important. But in Jesus' servanthood, He takes those people and He pulls them in closer to Himself. The people who are bruised, the people who are marginalized, the people on the outside, those are the ones He desires to bring in unto Himself. In Christ, we're all small and humbled in our insignificance, yet at the same time in Christ, we're all set apart, sanctified, holy, and privileged. Amazing. It's an amazing thing. Those two things go together. It's like the suffering servant and the sovereign Lord, all in the person of Jesus. As well, he says, all equal as servants. No tears. All on the same level. All vital parts of the body that are necessary to function in harmony and in beauty. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18 says, But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, the body of Christ in the church, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be, all placed in the precise, precise position as God intended. All of us locally, all of us nationally, all of us internationally and corporately are part of the body of Christ. And He's placed each one of them in a position where they function interdependently with the rest of the body, depending on each other.
not independent, but interdependently. Dependent on the Father and dependent on each other in order for that body to function in harmony. And so, that's the model that God set for us. And He knows each one of us. And He knows where we fit. It's like taking a breath of air or taking a bite of food. And as we digest that air, and as we digest that food, there's parts of our body that play a role somewhere in that. And if you didn't have that, we couldn't breathe the air and nourish the food. But everything works perfectly together. No one thing's important, and no one thing is unimportant. They're all equally important together. And so it is with, with us in God. At the root of this inequality, there is the ugliness of sin. The evidence of sin showing up in pride, showing up in selfishness, in greed and inconsiderate hearts. Galatians 5.19 says, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. If we think for some reason that our pride, our selfishness, our greed, our inconsideration towards other people is somehow hidden, we're deceived. It's open and it's obvious for people to see because it says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious to each one. And so, the veil's been lifted. We're all in the same boat. We all have some measure of pride. We all have some measure of ego. But that is just the nature of who we are. But in Christ we know that those things have been dealt with on the cross. Jesus' victory on the cross defeats sin, has power over sin in our lives, and has given us life, has given us new life. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, not around or near, but in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In order to be his servant and model that servanthood, the introspective examination is necessary. The closer look at ourselves is necessary to validate that we're His. It's critical that we examine ourselves and ask, are we living out the passing away of old things, of old sinfulness, of old nature? Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives within me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loves me and gave himself for me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But Christ lives in me. And I live by the faith of Jesus. Do others, believers, see the miracle of rebirth and transformation occur in our life. Would other brothers and sisters in Christ validate that we're becoming more like the servant of Jesus? Of course, our servant nature 
is not to be worn around like some badge of honor. Like, look, look, what a great servant I am. Isn't that fantastic how great I am? No. But, in the quiet evidence of humility and the gentle servant lifestyle, it's worthy of discussion with a trusted. And I highlight and bold and encapsulate and all that big letter stuff. Trusted. Fellow believer. To provide private feedback regarding their observations of our Christian walk. Wouldn't that be interesting? If we were to get alongside a trusted believer and they gave us honest, transparent, and clear feedback of our walk in Christ. And not this, how am I doing in my Christian walk? No. That's got all the, the window dress of pride and ego and self in it. No, more so, what is Jesus doing in me? Is that rebirth and continual transformation, is that visible to others? The question is this. Would we really want to hear the comments? Like John providing the seven churches with his report. Some very, very good observations, but at the same time, he also included what we might call today opportunities for improvement. And when we take those opportunities for improvement and welcome them, like, oh, I didn't know that I had this blind side. I didn't know that I had this sinful way of behaving. I didn't know that this is who I am and how I appear and how I connect with other people. I didn't know that. Thank you. I can do something with that. We're called to be part of Christ's mission on earth. To demonstrate God's righteousness and be the light for Gentiles, in verse 6. To all nations. Now, Canada has become an all-nations country. We go out in the city streets and we see evidence of all nations. We go to Toronto and we see evidence of all nations. But guess what? We come to Timmins and we see evidence of all nations. Right here in our city, in South Porcupine. Through Christ, all people have been given the opportunity to share in His mission work, in the work of the kingdom. God's call to us to be servants of His Son, demonstrating God's righteousness. Not talking about it, but demonstrating God's righteousness and bringing His light into the darkened world. And that demonstration is louder, it's clearer, and it's easier seen than using words. And that demonstration is based on what God has given us in terms of our love for other people from other nations. As we seek to be inclusive and seek to, 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 to bring those people into God's love. It's not long when Isaiah describes the servant nature of Jesus 
that he introduces this whole concept of being called. We see that in verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. The call to the Lord's mission is coupled with servanthood. The two go together. A servant of God and called of God. We've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we call Him Lord and we call Him Savior. And by that very nature, we call ourselves Christians. Disciples of Jesus. We are servants of God. And as servants, we are called into the service of Jesus Christ. And to be the light for the Gentiles. And that's not an optional elective. That's not something that it's really suited for somebody else. It's something that he's called each one of us to. If any brother or sister is here today, and they don't know what God's call is towards them, if they'd like to know, and they're saying, you know what, I just don't know. I just, it eludes me of what God's call is. We'd love to meet in the prayer room with you following this service and pray that God might reveal His call and provide clarity to your heart. So you might know and have the assurance that God has put a call in your life, put a call in your heart. In conclusion, when I worked in mining a few years ago, the company that I was employed with introduced this new software and that everyone needed to learn how to use this. It was extensive and it needed to be learned and applied in order to function and perform your jobs. It wasn't one of those training courses where you go and you sit back and you put your head in neutral and you go home at the end and all's good. This is one of these courses and they said, we're going to train you and when you're finished the training, you're going to have to use this. So you should probably pay attention to what we're training you in. So everyone sort of put their mind in that, in that sort of a, a place. And during training, there was a practice location in the training package called the Sandbox. Well, the Sandbox was this no-risk place. You could make as many mistakes as you want and you didn't destroy the company or whatever. It was no big deal. It was safe. It was no risk. But it was also non-realistic. It was non-reality. It was a training location and it was good. Everybody loved the sandbox because you could go in there, do what you want and nobody really cared. Right, wrong, indifferent. It was all good. But the day came when training was completed. And the date approached when the company went live. The system, old system was gone. The new system was live. And so, there was no more sandbox. Now, the call of the employer was to get out there and put in practice what you've been trained to use and apply it. Some did better job than others. But the fact is, 
we had to use it. As servants of Jesus and being called to the mission of his kingdom work, Isaiah urges us, pleads with us, and asks us to abandon the sandbox and be laser focused on pursuing the call that Jesus has put on our lives. That is what Isaiah is prompting us to. Let's just close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the, that hope that we have in you, Lord. We thank you that we can trust you, and that we do believe, Lord. Our prayer today as we, we go from this place, that, that that belief that we have in you would be deepened, that we would trust you, and we rely upon you in a, in a much deeper way, Lord. So we thank you for the, the servant mission, Lord, that you've placed on our lives. We thank you for the call that you've given to us as individual believers. And we just rejoice that we can serve you, Jesus. We praise you. Add your blessing to each one of us as we do today. In his precious name we pray. Amen.